Can you name a book? The Book of Lies. The book that's most changed my life. The books have nothing to say. The most correct of any book on earth. This book is fantastic. This book is going to, you know, scare people. This book is not a bedtime story. This book is out of control. Oh, truck drivers would love this book. You must burn the books, Montag. That's my second favorite book of all time. I'd like to bear my testimony. I know this book is true. You're listening to the Book of Darren. In this episode, I just made a giant masterpiece for all the greatest world's newspaper nerds. Someone suggested a Max Headroom episode, and I thought that was a great idea, so here we are. Ben Minot is a musician, YouTuber, archivist, and a historian of sorts. His first YouTube video was about the Max Headroom incident, but that was 10 years ago. Since then, he's made hundreds more videos, and I only discovered his channel a few weeks ago, but I've already watched dozens of them. If you haven't heard of Oddity Archive yet, then I'm proud to introduce you to my good friend, Ben Minot. When was the first time you heard about the Max Headroom signal interruption? Uh, it would have been about 2011, I guess. Uh, I had... Uh... Well, I guess maybe more like 2012, because I had lost a, a job that I had in April of 2012, and I just kind of retreated into my own little world of digging around YouTube and stuff for uh, things that scared me as a kid and just kind of off-the-wall TV stuff, and there I found the Max Headroom incident. And what was your initial impression of it? Half horror, half amusement. <laughs> that sounds about right. And then were you puzzled by the fact that it's unsolved? I mean, you, the first time you're looking at it is, you know, almost 25 years after the fact. Yeah, I kind of figured that after a certain point, either the perpetrators would have just, they couldn't stand it anymore and would have said, hey, look at me, I did it. Or that they would have been hunted down eventually. For uh, someone who doesn't know what we're talking about, would you mind telling us real quick what exactly the Max Headroom incident is? The Max Headroom incident is a, a pair of broadcast hijackings that took place on November 22nd, 1987 on local TV in Chicago. Uh, the initial intended target was WGN, and they were able to get video in there, but no audio. And I suppose just in uh, as a means of getting it out there, kind of a proof of concept, they went after WTTW, the PBS affiliate, and that time were able to hijack uh, a Doctor Who rerun with both video and audio. And the perpetrator wore a rubber Max Headroom Halloween mask and rattled off a, on the surface a bunch of strange, unrelated thoughts, but they all do kind of tie back to WGN. He names one of their anchors, uh, some of their old programming, and so on. And um, it cuts to another uh, slightly risque scene involving a fly swatter at the end, and it cuts off. It's about a minute and a half long. And it's it's very odd. None of it really makes sense. There doesn't seem to be a specific motive. It's not like he hijacked the interruption and was like, hey, everyone, I have to tell you that Mayor Wilson is corrupt and you guys need to know about this right away. It was just a string of random thoughts, it seems like. Yeah, well, I mean, there is a certain logic to those thoughts, but I, I'm convinced it was primarily proof of concept. 
the whole thing was just, let's see if we can do it. Yeah. Even that though, in, in 1987 in Chicago, how many people could have known how to do this? Well, uh, Chicago had a, a pretty thriving freaking scene, PHR freaking, uh, phone hacking. And uh, of course, Chicago was one of the first cities in America to embrace television, uh, a big TV town, a lot of technology there, um, a lot of early adopters of computers in Chicago. And so it, it kind of makes sense that it would have happened there as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and also there's uh, things like ham radio enthusiasts and so on. So it does kind of make sense. Uh, and there's a good geek community as well. Uh, I don't know how much today, but uh, certainly in the late 80s. Speaking of a geek community, uh, I'm, I'm in the telecommunications industry and I have a coworker who's a little bit nerdier than me about, about radio specifically. I was talking to my coworker who has a, a lot more radio knowledge than me. And I was talking to him about how you would pull something like this off, specifically in the late 80s. And he's he said, you know, they just had to get in the way of the, the studio transmitter link and then be able to overpower that. And the two, yeah. the two TV stations that they were able to interrupt the broadcast, they weren't broadcasting from the same spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um... Your friend is right. Now, bear in mind, I have no uh, experience in broadcasting. So unless you want to count a little micro broadcasting, uh, part 15 kind of stuff. But um, yeah, that, that's really all it took. It was still all analog back then. It wasn't too deeply encrypted, if at all. So really, yeah, as long as you could, if you knew what the line of sight was between the station and the transmitter, Theoretically, you could just get in the middle of it and uh, hijack it, be it with maybe a, a news van if you had access to it from one of the TV stations. Or I've read that uh, you could pull it off with kind of homemade uh, sort of satellite, little satellite dish thing. So, yeah, it, it was perfectly plausible. Uh, if anything, I think it kind of uh, set in motion a lot of the changes in broadcasting that have happened since then that, you know, to try and make it more secure. Even if you have a mobile satellite dish, like on a tripod or something, you still have to know what frequency those TV stations that that transmitter uplink is. Yeah. Well, uh, another thing that was part of the legalese back then when TV stations used to go off the air at night, and even now, if you happen to be watching at 3 or 4 a.m., they'll throw it in usually. But uh, generally, TV stations are required to state at some point during the day, we are channel so-and-so, we operate on such and such a bandwidth and all that. We're based out of here. Our transmitter is located atop such and such mountain or whatever. And so, yeah, it could be uh, pretty easily acquired public knowledge. And then, of course, uh, pretty much any decent book on uh, television broadcasting would give you the frequency for certain channels and such. So, yeah, it's really, uh, it was surprisingly simple, I think. Yeah, my, my friend Scott, shout out to Scott. He's he's convinced that it's a, like a retired broadcast engineer or a, a group of, of nerdy engineers that, you know, like you said, we're doing some sort of proof of concept. Yeah. Yeah. I'm more of the belief that it was some younger people who pulled it off that they were, again, maybe they were just 
they were new to the system. Now, I do think there was a little bit of inside job there. I think there was probably a jilted employee involved somewhere in there. But uh, I do think it was more of a punk move than anything else. Uh, some young kids just saying, hey, we can do this. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I want to talk about the fact that multiple people are involved. So at the very least, you have the two people on screen, what appears right. to be a man and a woman. Right. Uh, and then there's a third that's not named. At one point, the hijacker says, when he's talking about his gloves, because he's wearing these kind of cartoony gloves, um, I, I can't wear this glove. My brother's got the other one. It's dirty. So theor- theoretically, that would make it three people involved there. So uh, two that appear on camera and one that does not. Do you assume that the interruption is pre-recorded? Yes. Because there's that edit in there. Yeah. Be, for that reason. Um, yeah. You're not going to pull that. Now, theoretically, I suppose they could have done it partially live, but I don't think it would have been practical and then cut to the final scene with the fly swatter. Yeah. I've heard that, that theory before, but it just doesn't check out in my opinion. Yeah. It, it would be totally impractical. Since this is pre-recorded, and at the very least, there's two, most likely three people involved. The fact that this has been over 30 years now and none of those people have come forward is shocking. The more I've looked into it and the more I've talked about it with others, it becomes a little less surprising, actually, with time to me. And uh, the reason for that is that... Uh, I mentioned a minute or two ago that I think there may have been a jilted employee, station employee of WGN involved there somewhere, whether it was a junior employee, which I would assume or not is anyone's guess. But they knew enough about broadcasting and about how long it takes to triangulate something that they needed to get in and out quickly. So I think that minute and a half was very deliberate because I believe that you can triangulate within three if you're up to it. Uh, Granted, I'm not an expert on that, but uh, in a minute and a half, I don't think uh, the authorities would be able to pull much off. I I agree with that. I think the duration of the incident was deliberate. If you go on too long, you just, the risk goes up exponentially. Yeah, after a certain point, you'd be a sitting duck. But why is it that you think these three people, none of them have come forward? Uh, well, I don't have any singular theory on it, but my the simplest one, Occam's Razor, would state that they just, even though the statute of limitations is long past, that doesn't mean that there isn't some old Fed out there that wouldn't still like to have a word with them and that they might still fear it. And then my other thought is that there's, probably at least one person involved in the industry uh, in broadcasting, even if it's just local TV being a a tech on a local TV station, and they just don't want that uh, on their name. Yeah, that's true. Especially if the theory is that uh, it was a couple of college kids that, that pulled this off. And then, you know, now they have a legitimate career as, you know, the head engineer at some station. And it's, it's possible to, you know, I've, I've thought about this, like with D.B. Cooper, there was sort of a statute of limitations, but there are ways to get around that. So maybe they wouldn't be charged with that specific crime. Is there still some sort of civil liability that they could be responsible for? I'm not, I'm not a, a legal expert at all, so I, I wouldn't think so, but I suppose there could be some sort of damage uh, to the station, some sort of theoretical damage. Uh, anything they could have claimed like lost revenue at the time, I think would have uh, fizzled out after a certain point. 
but uh, you just never know with uh, the law. I know I'm kind of sounding like a conspiracy theorist here, but I am kind of convinced that to a point, at least there wouldn't, there might be some older, maybe retired old fed that just, you know, for their own edification, wouldn't want to have a word with them. Uh, at this point, as time goes on, it becomes less and less of an issue. So uh, as I said earlier, I think at this point, it's more, they just don't want it attached to their name, assuming they're still alive too. I mean, a lot can happen and uh, we're pushing 35 years here. Now, granted, they would have been pretty young, but anything can happen. Oh, certainly. I, I just, the idea that you, you pull this off and it's become as famous as it is for something that only happened in one small part of the United States over a period of a minute and a half that you wouldn't want to take credit for it. I would, if I pulled this off and I hadn't told anyone, it would be all I'd be thinking about. Yeah, I'm sure it weighed on the perpetrators pretty heavily and possibly still could. Uh, Certainly with the rise of YouTube, it probably made a little comeback. Why do you think the message was as random as it was? If I couldn't interrupt a broadcast, I could put whatever I want on there. He could have put, he could have played porno. He could have made a crazy political message, but it was just sort of like obscure inside jokes almost. Yeah. And and hence my theory of it being more proof of concepts than anything else, just to show that, yeah, we can do it. So I wish it were deeper than that. (laughs) But I, in, in the nearly 10 years that I've been looking at this here, uh, granted, I've really backed off on it in the last five years, but um, after a certain point, you just kind of have to let simplicity take over because otherwise your mind kind of goes off in all these stray, you know, pretty fanciful areas and reality tends not to work that way. Uh, as I said, anything can happen in this world, but after a certain point, you just have to let practicality take over. How deep did you get into, you know, investigating and researching this? Um, well, the person that posted the hijacking is a guy named Rick Klein, and he runs a site called fuzzymemories.tv, which is an online museum of uh, old Chicago, usually Chicago TV. And so after I made the episode, I don't remember if he got in contact with me or I got in contact with him. I think I got in contact with him. It's a little hazy at this point. But um, he had the tape of it at the time. And you'd have to reach out to him because I don't remember if he recorded it or a friend recorded. I'm pretty sure he did. But that kind of led me in and he's kind of led me along for the ride kind of in spurts when anything comes up over the last almost 10 years. Um, At one point, uh, he had some sort of little excursion with somebody who claimed to be in on it and Uh, Of course, there have been a ton of red herrings, you know, the internet, everybody has to prove how edgy they are, uh, fulfill their little fantasies and stuff, and people will claim that they did it, and so on and so forth. So um, I I really kind of credit Rick more for filling me in on that, and uh, just kind of taking me along for the ride. What are some of the more wild theories out there? I've heard things like it was going to be the start of a recurring hijacking I I can't say I've heard any great wild theories on why it happened. Uh, Like I said, most of it has been kind of red herrings, people claiming that they did it. And 
coming up with, oh, yeah, me and my friends were sitting around a pizza hut back in 87. And, hey, you need to watch Doctor Who tonight, even though that had no correlation to anything said in the hijacking. So it's more kind of that Internet fanciful thing that I've heard. Yeah, people want to have some sort of involvement in it. Yeah. Every once in a while, I'm sure somebody comes forward and said, you know, it was it was me. It was my it was my brother. It was my uncle. Yeah, um, there were uh, things at least, you know, five to 10 years ago saying, uh, I knew this autistic guy I knew. And, and even then the body movements might suggest something like that. Uh, but you, you just, I, I've kind of written all that off. As I said, at this point, I'm just kind of like, you know, I think it was just proof of concept. So I'm sorry if I'm bursting any bubbles here, but after a certain point, you just kind of have to let it go. Why do you think people won't let it go? Because it's a good story and people love a good story. Do you think there's any any deeper meaning to the choice of Max Headroom? Well, uh, if you're familiar with the old Max Headroom TV series, uh, he that character was a pirate, a, a digitally created pirate. And it was uh, kind of a cyberpunk sort of thing. If you've, again, if you've seen that old series. So I think that Max Headroom as the character was very deliberate for the hijacking and why you see that spinning piece of corrugated sheet metal trying to emulate the, that pattern that's behind Max Headroom on the old TV show and the commercials that Max, uh, Max did, uh, Matt Frewer did. Which I think the corrugated, uh, corrugated metal did a pretty good job of that. It did. It did a surprisingly good job. Uh, One nice thing that's kind of happened with the internet is when you transfer old videotapes, you lose the overscan. So you get the total picture. So if you're looking up into the corners, you can kind of see some shelving and stuff back there. So uh, there was obviously some sort of homemade rig involved and it almost looks like it took place in somebody's garage or in a warehouse. Yeah. How much do you think the FBI has studied that tiny little bit of that frame? I'd be, I'd be surprised if they did it all that much. I think they would have been probably more interested in trying to unravel it on a technical level, more from what they see in the background, because now you'd have to talk to Rick. I'm sure Rick still, I can't imagine him not having the original tape and I'm sure he's got a real good pass at it at this point, but he just uh, doesn't want it a little too clear. But at the same time, I'd be kind of surprised if you could make out any kind of anything of significance behind the sheet metal. Maybe if it's shelving, maybe you can make out a brand name of, you know, some sort of paint thinner or something. Not going to do us that much good at this point in time. No. Is anything like this possible today? Well, as I say, anything is possible, but I'd say it's very unlikely because uh, certainly with the transition to digital, things are truly encrypted now. So it's a much tougher nut to crack. And the couple of little hijackings that have happened in the years since have either been internal or from something that would have, have a foot in the door already. Like, Uh, A few years back, somebody managed to take the emergency alert system and put in just a little gag thing about a zombie apocalypse, you know, the dead arising from their graves. And it went out uh, as a a proper emergency alert system uh, broadcast. But uh, yeah, as far as something along, truly along the lines of Max Headroom, I'd say if it happened at all, it would have to be internal and it would be a pretty easy open and shut case if somebody did try it. 
I saw that zombie apocalypse thing on your channel, actually. Yeah. Speaking yeah, of... I, I had to jump on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so speaking of Max Headroom and your channel, the first video that you did on YouTube, which is almost exactly 10 years ago now, you chose to do Max Headroom. Is there a, a specific reason why you started the show out with Max Headroom? Uh, because I thought it was a good story, funnily enough. You know, the whole reason it seems to stick and uh, somewhat to my chagrin, it remains far and away the most popular video on my channel. I think it's the only one that's ever cracked half a million views. And so it's kind of like, well, I, I peaked early, didn't I? But uh, as far as I'm concerned, it, I, it was just a good story. And when I was first starting Archive, I kind of had my little directions I wanted to go in. I, I think I kind of failed in a way in that I should not have made the first four episodes all TV related, actually first five, uh, because it set up an expectation that I still kind of hear about at times. But uh, yeah, I just thought it was a really good firecracker, you know, something that would get butts in the proverbial seats. Well, I think you accomplished that goal. What Take me back to starting the channel. Why did you decide to create a YouTube channel? Uh, well, I hadn't planned on doing it, but uh, I mentioned it much earlier now that I had lost my job in April of 2012, and I was just kind of sitting around home unemployed, pissing around on YouTube, and I just found myself going down this rabbit hole of memories and just some kind of newer stuff, like newer to me, like Max Headroom. And I was watching a lot of the kind of angry reviewer channels, you know, the angry video game nerd and nostalgia critic and stuff. And so with regards to Max Headroom, nobody at the time had tried to piece it together, really. So I thought, well, I got nothing better to do. So I'll just I'll, I'll write an article about it. And I did. And I found that I'm, I'm one of those people that I write the way I talk. So it'd be more effective if I just said it. And prior to archive, I did music. So I had some recording gear as well. So it's like, you know, I'll just make this a video, just see how it goes. And, uh, you know, I'll do two or three of this, see if it has any interest whatsoever. And I just kind of became the, the accidental YouTuber that way. 10 years. <laughs> accidental uh, in doing it for 10 years. Yeah. Nobody can stretch out an accident like me. <laughs> What was the original goal for the show? Uh, nobody else was covering the stuff that I was interested in. Nobody was talking about kind of the TV ephemera. Nobody was talking about music uh, stuff that I was interested in. Uh, some of the more off the wall stuff. It was more Todd in the Shadows talking mainstream stuff. And so it was just like, well, there's an obvious hole in the market here. So I'll, I'll see what I can do with it. And it's all, it all ties into AV anyway, so it gives me a nice uh, open space to work within. Were you working in the AV industry? Uh, I did hotel AV for a few years, and I spent almost a decade doing stage crew stuff. So uh, I guess in a peripheral sense, but uh, nothing broadcasty, certainly. And so originally it was you wanted to review i guess is the word some of this older 80s 90s and broadcast stuff yeah it was just something that had kind of caught my interest and again like i said it was me kind of reliving certain things like 
when I was a little kid, the emergency broadcast system just freaked me out. And then somewhere down the line, it became a fascination. And uh, so, uh, as I mentioned, kind of a means of revisiting some of that stuff. Yeah, I can't think of too many people who are doing long, informative reviews of emergency broadcast alerts. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, it's not that deep a well. And I still get all these (laughs) messages saying, when are you going to do another one? And I'm like, well, as long as it takes for me to get enough material. I mean, I've done it uh, technically, I guess, three or four times in almost 10 years, but you know, it's just, I have to keep things a little more broad than that. What's the goal of the show now? Uh, these days, it's more just, it's become kind of my own little college in a way. Um, you know, I, I mentioned I was in music before, and I was only a techie in the loosest sense. And so certainly in the last couple of years, it, I mean, it's always been about me digging through content. To me, that's the true heart of archive, but it's become me, you know, when I started out, I just had a crappy little $90 turntable that was totally misaligned and it's become more, okay, let's try and up my game here. Let me try and figure out how to do a better job at transferring those tapes and so on. So uh, it's shifted maybe a little more towards the tech over time, but uh, I think the two complement each other well because uh, to appreciate the content, it helps to understand the tech. Uh, I enjoy that as well. I like seeing you play with with old equipment. You had a video recently on uh, UHF receivers. And yeah, I, I, uh... I worked at DirecTV for 10 years. So those weird TV gizmos and gadgets... Um, antennas and switching like I was so into that stuff so I really enjoy seeing some of that on your channel Um, one in particular you did the 3do and that was one where as a kid like I read about it in in like game pro magazine but I didn't know anyone that had a 3do I I probably only saw it at, at Toys R Us or in the electronics section at Fred Meyer but yeah, I, I'm, I'm the same way. I remembered the commercials for it, and it looks, you know, pretty dang high tech back in, when was that, 93 or 94? And I didn't know anybody that had it. Uh, everybody, it was the standard. You had a Super Nintendo or a Sega Genesis. That was the how it was for me, and I'd imagine most kids, unless maybe you lived in a more wealthy area. And uh, that's another thing with archive. It's kind of allowed me to go back and acquire some of that stuff that I couldn't get the first time. So 3DO had been on my list because it always interested me. And uh, I used to live in suburban Denver up until a few years ago. And there was a vintage uh, of sorts video game store in Aurora. (laughs) Aurora. I always have to emphasize the first R because I take hell for it otherwise. And um, they always had a little stash of 3DO games in there. So yeah, that was one of those ones that was more of a a personal conquest for me, a a slightly demented one, but still. You even found 3DO porn. Yes. And um, that somewhat came by way of the angry video game nerd. He had done a video on plumbers don't wear ties and that, led me to some other stuff and finding that there were all these other quote unquote games, which are really just more movies with very, very little actual play involved. And uh, 
that did surprise me. Uh, but of course, at the time of the 3DO as a kid, I wouldn't have thought much about the business end anyway. But uh, certainly come 20 years later, I wasn't thinking of, you know, with Nintendo, you know, with Nintendo, you have to have a deal with Nintendo to put out the game. It's not open. At least it didn't used to be. Maybe it is now. So I didn't realize that 3DO was effectively open source. Yeah, but if you want to talk about the business sense of that, like you just said, everyone had a Super Nintendo or a Sega. Nobody had a 3DO. You know, everyone would have had a VCR in their house. But how big is the market for... 3do owners who want to use the system for porn yeah my best guess with that is that the people that were doing the truly open source stuff were hoping that the price would come down to a competitive level with super nintendo and sega in time that that's just my best guess is there a single video or tape or recording that you have in your personal collection that you're most proud of I've got a few. The first one that comes to mind is I have a tape, an off-air tape, from the day I was born, from the same state that I was born in, not necessarily the same town, but uh, that one really means a lot to me, even though there's nothing really remarkable to it, but just to be able to have that look at TV the day you were born, kind of like how some parents will save the newspaper from the day their kid was born. So that right, comes but for to you, mind. it's got to be over-the-air broadcast. Oh, yeah, with the commercials and everything. That's pretty cool. Is there anything else that you were just searching for forever that was rare or obscure, and then you you found it at, at Joe's Swap Meet one day? Yeah, kind of, sort of. Uh, my Umatic, my three-quarter-inch video deck, the tuner timer unit for that was a thrift store find, and I still kind of consider that one of my all-time great, if not my all-time great thrift store find. So I was able to make that into kind of the sort of home video rig that it was sort of floated to be at the time, but it was very half-hearted and way out of the price range of most folks. So um, yeah, it, it may not mean much to a lot of people, but it uh, it set that project in motion. And it took me, I think, six or seven years to, I did a video on it last year i believe where i finally got everything together with the umatic deck uh, with the um the remote control the hardwired remote control and a little plastic cover which basically is just kind of a power choke and running it through the tuner timer unit and all that how many people would have even known what that was looking at it i would imagine very very few <laughs> would you pay for it ben uh twelve dollars <laughs> The going rate on Fleabay, I think, is about 150. So it's not like it's a, you know, that really super obscure Holy Grail $10,000 thing. But, you know, it, it was certainly a, a massive price break. I wouldn't call it a Holy Grail, but I found a Wolverine uh, video uh, film scanner, 8 and Super 8. And I did a video on that last October, I believe. And that was $400 new. And you can still get them. And I picked it up for uh, 10 10 bucks. It's a good deal. Some depreciation there. Yeah. What do you think is the best video format, physical format? Well, it depends on if you want to record or not. Um, as far as recording goes, and assuming we're staying within the realm of retro stuff here, I, I do prefer Betamax. I think it's truer to what is actually broadcast. And my personal favorite 
old school video format in general is the laser disc and I've done tons of videos on it. Why the laser disc? Uh, it, it's for me personally, it's the bump in quality because at, at its best, you're kind of right within spitting distance of DVD. And given that Laserdisc was introduced right around the end of 1978, only locally, regionally at the time. But uh, to me, it's a bit of a feat watching something like that. And of course, since it's, you know, like a CD, you can play it a million times and it won't wear out. So it's also the kind of robust thing. I like that. I you know, with a tape, you watch it over and over, you pause it and so on. It, it becomes a snowstorm after a certain point. That's a good point. Videotapes, VHS, they're so durable though. They can be, uh, as long as the VCR is in decent shape. Uh, and also sometimes the, they're starting to rot a little. The leaders snap off sometimes uh, with any tape-based media. They can go sticky. They can accrue mold. So there is that. Do you miss movie rental stores? Uh, not particularly. Um, I hadn't been to one in the last several years of the Blockbuster and all those and I was a little young for most of the mom and pop stuff. So uh, not particularly. And at this point, I'm always working. So if I do have enough time to watch a movie, I don't want to rent it because I don't know if I'm going to have the time to watch it. So I'm much more guilty of buying a copy, you know, a Blu-ray or something. And then I can just watch it whenever. Can I ask how old you are, Ben? 36. I'm 36 as well. So our life experience should be pretty similar that way but i i really do miss video stores but i think it's more because when i picture blockbuster or hollywood video i just picture me being like 11 years old and my sister's nine and we're going there with my parents and then we're going to go to little caesar's on the way home and friday night was movies and pizza yeah and it, it was almost identical with me every friday afternoon after school my dad and i would go to the video store and so there was that ritual to it. Um, of course, nowadays we've gotten so spoiled with more choice. You know, you have millions of options on Amazon and Netflix and YouTube and whatever more specialized streaming services, Shutter, Night Flight, that sort of thing. So to me, the thought of going back to the video store is, well, you know, there's the ritualistic end of it, but at the same time, it's kind of narrowing things down. And uh, if it would go back to Blockbuster or something, it would probably be just a few titles. It would just be like a full story equivalent of the, the little red box thing outside the convenience store. Yeah, that's probably true. But one thing to be said for that time period was we all watched the same thing. You know, you and I would go to school on Friday and they would talk about what was on NBC's Thursday lineup. Oh, did you watch Friends and Seinfeld last night? And oh, yeah, everyone did. So you could have like those water cooler discussions about the show you watched last night or the new movie that came out. And yeah. well, my attitude towards something like that is, in my opinion, I think the quality of a lot of shows has really gone down over the years. And the reason why it's not a water cooler discussion the morning after is because it just doesn't it doesn't cut it on a, a cultural level. It doesn't become a part of the fabric anymore. And I think that is more of a quality thing because my attitude is if you have another show that's considered a real classic like MASH or something happened today, I'd imagine it would 
be that heavily watched still. Of course, that's me just spitballing. Well, I don't know. It's there's so much out there that if I, you know, ask 10 people on the street, what did you watch last night? All 10 of them are going to say something completely different. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't have anything really to add to that. Like I said, in my opinion, if there was something that was really that good, it would catch on maybe not to such an extreme level, but uh, within spitting distance, I, as I said, like the, the mash comparison, that if it was something that was really that monumental, then you could probably get people around it again. Uh, at the same time, we're both kind of just spitballing here. I think it's, uh, it, it's, everything's become very diffuse now with all the extra options. So I don't know if I hold any great nostalgia for it. Uh, only time will tell. Yeah, I guess we'll see. It's just, I don't know, maybe I am being nostalgic for that. But, you know, I was talking to my brother-in-law about how we don't watch anything a second time anymore. You know, in high school, we got The Mummy on DVD and me and my friends watched it 60 times in a few weeks. But I pretty much won't watch anything a second time now, nor do my kids. Is that good or is that bad? Well, I think it depends on what circles you run in. Like in my circle, where it's much more uh, geek heavy, we do tend to buy hard copies and rewatch and kind of let it soak in. Uh, so as far as the mainstream goes, just, you know, truly everyday Joe Lunchbucket. Yeah, I can kind of see where that would happen. Uh, at which point it becomes, does it stick in your mind well enough to make you want to go back and revisit it? Um, and also to your point, there's less of an investment. You know, you bought a copy of a DVD back in the late nineties, you know, most of the time you were looking at North of $20, or if you want to go back to VHS in the early eighties, if you actually bought a tape, it could be almost a hundred. So there was always that amount of investment involved. Uh, you buy an album, you know, maybe in the seventies, it was five ninety nine, but that was still enough. That was more than a kid's allowance, certainly. Um, so as far as today, like I said, I think it's more just kind of what circles you run in and we'll just have to see what sticks in people's minds, if anything at all. Uh, I think it's just too soon to tell. Yeah. That's a good point about getting the physical media. Cause growing up, if I wanted to watch a movie, I would go to the hallway where we had a bookshelf filled with VHS tapes and I would choose from one of those. Well, my kids don't have that experience. They turn on the TV and have unlimited choices. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't have any children of my own, but I don't think my kids would ever be uh, in want of a video or a record <laughs> or something. What does your personal archive look like? Um, what, the media end of y- it? Yeah. Uh, lots and lots of U-Haul boxes. Is there a specific format that you have more than any other? With regards to music, I've got somewhere in the thousands of CDs, probably north of a thousand records. And then I've got hundreds of archive candidates, both the ones that I haven't gone through yet, ones that I've rejected, ones that have been on archive. Uh, Videos, I've got a few hundred off-air tapes. I've got probably two to three hundred DVDs and Blu-rays. Um, I had a few hundred VHS tapes. When I moved a few years ago, I gave a lot of it away. And some of those tapes I'm kind of kicking myself for, uh, even though they may have been mainstream titles. It's like, oh, I wish I could have had access to 
that uh, sequence of coming attractions at the beginning or the logo, the logo or something. If you're at a thrift store in Albuquerque and you see a bunch of VHS tapes that were home recordings or off-air recordings, who knows what it could be. Do you buy those tapes? Specifically Albuquerque? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, just, uh, and yeah, anywhere. Uh, I, I do a sub-series called Archive Thrifting, and I, there have been times where I've found people's, you know, blanks, so to speak, in the stores, and I've picked them up, and I, I don't know if any of those have appeared on it yet. I have a few that I intend to uh, use on Archive so, uh, yeah, I, I almost always do. And it's how I've wound up periodically accidentally getting people's wedding videos and things like that. <laughs> do, you, do you make an effort to like, hey, guys, I found your wedding tape? Uh, no, because invariably they don't give you the full name. It's just, you know, Uncle Charlie, so to speak, you know, with the camcorder at the back of the church. And you always have to wonder, did this end in divorce? Uh, you know, th- maybe there's a reason it wound up in the thrift store <laughs> bin. So you're buying blank VHS tapes and then going home and seeing what's on them. Yeah, because I, it's always the hunt for off-air stuff. I, I always love off-air. It's that uh, it's an unfiltered look at that moment in time. Uh, you, you know, it's as close as you can get to going into a time machine. And I found some good ones. Um, not long before I left Colorado, I found somebody's off-air recording, which had the late movie from KMGH, uh, the channel in Denver, uh, CBS back then, uh, from 1983, overnight Denver TV from early 1983. So of course I look. And what makes something worthy of being on the channel? Absurdity helps. So the name Oddity Archive, I guess maybe it's lost a little of its meaning over time, but um, I always try and have some sort of absurdist bent to it. And when I do the content-driven stuff, it's usually there pretty firmly. So uh, yeah, the first thing is, okay, how is this oddball? How does this fit my own title? So I assume you do the same thing with cassette tapes and blank CDs? Oh, yeah. Um, never found any, um, home recorded CDs that have really caught my attention. I have some like band demos and stuff. One of them, uh, the last episode I did in Colorado, uh, I had found the homemade album or extended demo or something of some band called Hydride. And, uh, it was this kind of new wave thing. Although I think it was a little after new wave had passed. And so, yeah, you just, I I always check. I found off-air recordings, sometimes as far back as, uh, in the case of Reel to Reel, I've gone, made it as far back as 1962. How does Reel to Reel hold up? Depends on the tape stock. So um, my personal favorite is Scotch 150, polyester backed, which is uh, a, a very common tape. You could pick it up for a couple bucks at the drugstore or uh, the Photoshop way back when. Uh, but some of it does go sticky um, and storage has a lot to do with it. Sometimes it, they get moldy. So any kind of tape format can do that. Um, reel to reel I haven't had to bake too many tapes so uh, generally in my experience the survival rate's been okay I tend to have more of a problem with dry shed for uh, reel to reel 
So the first time I did random reel-to-reel on archive, this is a perfect example. What has to be the only surviving footage of a thing called Teleguide, which used to air in hotel rooms in New York City in the 60s. Some guy that worked at a TV station in Oklahoma had uh, brought his tape recorder and was recording some of the local stuff off the TV. And so I have an hour of teleguide footage and it's on archive annex if you want to hear it as a whole. And when I was transferring it, the tape was dry shedding off. It wasn't sticking. It was just flaking right off. So I was able to get a pass at it. So I I tend to have more of a problem with dry shed with reel to reel. So you're buying, (laughs) I can't get over this. You're buying these blanks and going home and then just if it's a video, I assume you're just fast forwarding to see what's on there. Yeah, it, it's kind of unusual. I watch a video straight through with audio. You kind of have to listen. But yeah, I've got uh, I've even flea bait them. I got a set from England a few years back and those had all gotten moldy. I did a video on that of me kind of having to BS together my own little homemade cleaning rig. But I was recorded, uh, rewarded rather, with some early 90s British TV footage, uh, one of which had an original airing of an episode of Mr. Bean on it. So, yeah, I've had some, I I had some good luck. I've had a a lot of really bad luck. And uh, for the duds, I'll usually keep the, the best tape stock, the best condition tapes for junkers. So I can, uh, maybe I get a tape that I do want to run that's, the cassette got smashed somehow, so I can just move the tape from one cassette to another, uh, or just to have something handy to reuse or stick in a machine that I'm working on, and I don't care if I lose it. And occasionally they do wind up in the trash with me. Uh, I know that kind of strikes terror into the hearts of some of my viewers, But uh, just know that if I am throwing it out, it was probably just somebody's dub of something and usually a pretty poor dub. I think it's safe to say if you're throwing it out, it's not worth saving. I I try and keep it to, yeah, some sort of standard. (laughs) Is there anything specific that you're looking for? Is there, you know, I would kill to have broadcast footage from Tampa in 1997. Um, I've mentioned this on archive a few times. This is going to sound so silly, but there was a a local ad, a a local store that used to run ads on the UHF stations when I was a kid in the mid nineties. And it was like the real life Sanford and son. If you've seen that sitcom, you know, they had, he had the junkyard and there was this place on Colfax, East Colfax in Denver called Hubcap Annie's. And Hubcap Annie existed and she would dress as a Viking and she would do these ridiculous commercials in front of her shop, which sold hubcaps, used hubcaps. It was just this junky line of hubcaps. And I never recorded it at the time, you know, nine years old. I'm just not thinking about that. But I never did find any uh, Hubcap Annie. I was hoping before I left Colorado that I would have finally, you know, found that but it just never happened so if you've got any denver tapes from channel 31 or 20 from 1994 to 96 i'd love to see it 94 to 96 you know what ben i'll keep an eye out just for you all right thanks 
other than off-air recordings, what are some of your favorite TV shows? I don't really watch much TV today. I mean, I think Sven Gulli is pretty much the only thing I kind of watch anymore. Um, otherwise, I'll in the last few years, I found myself kind of revisiting old shows that I used to watch just more for something to watch before bed, just so I don't go to bed with a bunch of different things flying through my head, or maybe I'm angry about something I, you know, so I don't go to bed angry. So um, lately I've had a stack of DVDs next to my little player in my bedroom of uh, Night Court and WKRP in Cincinnati. Night Court. I was not expecting, I wasn't expecting, I guess I should have expected that answer actually. Um, well, yeah, I, I mean, I used to watch the, I only remember the very tail end of its actual and, you know, proper run, but I saw lots of reruns of it during the 90s. And then uh, on uh, Laugh, that sub channel a few years ago, I saw it there. So it was one that I'd been kind of wanting to revisit. And WKRP, they, uh, part of the problem with that was they had all, you know, as a radio station, there was music there and having to license all that music again. So they finally got a full series out the door. It's not complete in terms of music, but it's the best they could do. So I kind of had to jump on that one. You made a video about the death of analog TV and the digital transition. Yeah. And I found that super interesting because I was working at DirecTV during that time period and working in remote areas outside of, of Portland and areas that would have been on the very edge of the analog signal, but were not going to get the digital signal. So since it didn't, it didn't propagate as far as the analog signal did, especially in Pacific Northwest with mountains and trees and whatnot. So I, I very clearly remember that, you know, people were getting all of these letters in the mail and there were all these ads on TV and you had, you know, little old ladies in the woods who just had an antenna for the last 50 years that were upset their Zenith console wasn't going to work anymore. So I remember that period very well. But one thing I want to say about your video that I absolutely loved is at the very end of it, you were like, you know, some channels when they turned off the analog signal, it was in the middle of a commercial or the middle of someone talking, but other channels actually had a, a beautiful, nice send off for it. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I, I really liked that as well. I, I wasn't expecting that when I was researching that episode. And admittedly, when the analog shutoff happened, I just wasn't thinking about it because I had cable. And so I just didn't really care. And I hadn't kind of retreated back into my own headspace of analog quite yet. So yeah, when I finally got to see those, I'm, I'm glad that as many people as there were recorded that stuff for posterity. Um, yeah, some of those were just absolutely beautiful. Yeah, and some of them were terrible. The idea of like switching it off in the, in the middle of a Buick LeSabre commercial or whatever. It is just yeah, and, a drag. Yeah, and uh, actually that's what I would have expected because it's become so much of a, a strictly a business and the employees have become a bit more transient over the years. You don't have as many lifers in the business as you used to. And I really would have had it pegged for almost every station would have just been, okay, we need to be off at midnight. Just shut it off. Doesn't matter what's on. Yeah, because it was a redundant broadcast at that point in time. That I think about that a lot because for most people, uh, you know, especially our age, it was a non-issue. 
by the time it happened, we had modern TVs or we were on satellite or cable already. But I met many, many people in the course of that transition that, you know, were lifelong. I get my TV off an antenna and I have for 50 years. Yeah. And, and I, I, I totally feel for those people. I, I, I get what that's like. It, it always makes me want to come up with some sort of alternative but, you know, what, what kind of alternative are you going to give them? You know, hey, you go buy a satellite dish or, hey, start shelling out for cable. Um, and, of course, with digital TV, it's kind of all or nothing. And, and that's why I've kind of stuck with cable for as little TV as I actually watch. Uh, even here uh, in uh, South Dakota, the transmitters for the local stations are only, you know, in one case, I think two miles from me. And I still have a hard time picking them up with an antenna. So, um, yeah, that's always been my big gripe about over-the-air digital TV. It seems to be all or nothing. It's interesting you, when I talked about the digital transition, you immediately brought up, you know, I'm glad there were these people that were willing to archive this at the time. Do you think they thought that they were, you know, archiving this final broadcast? Is there this community of archivists that... I'm not aware of it, it. There's a definite geek community. And given that YouTube, you know, would have been pretty mainstream by 2009. Yeah. I, I think most of them said, you know, I'm just going to get this for posterity and I'm going to share it. So I think that that does happen. I mean, I'm, I've gotten to a point where I'm kind of guilty of that. I try and record the uh, annual national emergency alert system test um, if there's severe weather, I'll try and record the severe weather footage, stuff that is just never going to happen again, that is truly ephemeral. Are there other people that, you know, you're talking with, uh, with Tina who has her own archive over there? Um, I assume Tina is somebody that's just theoretical. Yes. Theoretical Tina. <laughs> um, I, I know a couple of them personally, I, I mentioned Rick Klein of uh, Fuzzy Memories, so I've known him for quite some time. And I've kind of become Facebook friends and stuff with a couple others. And then on YouTube, you just kind of run into the same names over and over again, even if you never do get in touch with them. Uh, a lot of them I've tried to contact through YouTube, but I don't think you even can do that with YouTube now. But the first few years of archive, and I just never heard back. So it's like, well, the best I can do is just credit you. If somebody else is archiving off-air tapes, is there different themes? Like, you know, Billy Bob wants all these off-air sports events, but you're um, looking for absurdity. Yeah, absurdity, uh, ephemeral stuff, as I said. Uh, so I, I'm always kind of digging around for a emergency broadcast system and stuff. That's kind of my thing, sign-offs. Yeah, there's guys out there that are all about the commercials there's people out there that are after that special that only aired once or the recurring specials like circus of the stars or something like that so it, it is known for the the people in this weird little loose incredibly loose community to uh have their own kind of favorites if i invested a billion dollars in oddity archive tomorrow how would it change the channel? It would shut down and I would retire. <laughs> but the one stipulation is the channel has to keep going. You got to do 10 more years. Uh, well, if that were the case, I'd probably be investing in 
certainly warehouse space, climate controlled warehouse space. Um, I'd be getting, I'd be just loading up on uh, period gear and uh, any sort of broadcasty stuff, anything that could uh, help with transfers, uh, all different types of uh, maybe cartridges for turntables, types of turntables, everything to make it as specific and or period appropriate as possible. Um, so that would kind of, I'm sure it would wind up being a shift in focus towards just setting up something to where we can uh, archive this stuff, some sort of physical and maybe uh, also kind of cloud thing as well. Do you have dreams of a physical museum that people could visit? No, um, I don't think I have anything that's really that special. I, I do kind of feel like I'm one of the junk men of YouTube and that I'm one of the few people that would care about 99% of the stuff that I get into. But, you know, at my most wild, I'd say, well, maybe I'll get to be an old man, truly old man, and some museum will want some piece of gear. Maybe it doesn't even work anymore, but just to have it there for a broadcast museum or something like that. I think that'd be awesome. I mean, I love going to to weird museums, especially ones where it's a personal collection. So why not open a big South Dakota oddity archive? Um, well, for one, I, it would be dead in the water. Uh, <laughs> it, the people around here in Denver was somewhat the same way, but around here, people are just kind of they always want to appear cosmopolitan. They want to appear hip and they will kind of try and consciously eschew older things because we got to look like we're modern. We got to have the latest cell phone, the new car and all that. So I think something like me that tends to be kind of backward looking would be dead in the water. That's totally not true. It's super hip now to like listen to vinyl. Yeah, except the people that listen to vinyl around here are mostly older people who just want to play, you know, their, their ultra common classic rock albums again, their Billy Joel albums or whatever they happen to be. Uh, nothing against Billy Joel. but All right. What the heck is up with your Halloween specials? <laughs> well, <laughs> the first year I my whole idea the first year was I was going to just do my own little stab at a parody of a short horror film. And so I thought, well, I kind of spent those first episodes of Archive making fun of, especially the emergency alert system. So, well, maybe it would be funny if the bot could somehow take, exact his revenge on me. And it's become a, an annual thing. Some years he only just makes a quick little cameo. Other years, it's all about the bot. So, yeah, it, it just kind of started as one thing and it just kind of grew Along the same lines, why do you cover your face with the lid to like a file loom box? Uh, it's a it's a printer paper box is what it is specifically. And when I first started archive, I wasn't going to appear on camera at all. And so the first two episodes had this gag where I would take a picture of something silly like Uncle Fester or Buster Keaton dressed as a monkey. And it would say your humble host. And I realized that there was no way I was gonna come up with a new one every episode. And at the same time, Archive, when it started, it was really more on blip.tv as opposed to YouTube and blip's long gone now. 
but um, Blip's whole thing was you need to be high quality and you need to be active, so to speak, in your show. And so that meant kind of having to appear on camera. And I just, I, I've never been comfortable on camera. And so it was kind of initially me just thumbing my nose at the whole thing by just sitting in front of my parents' old camcorder with just a, a box, holding up a box. And then I realized a few more episodes in that if I held it down and I just showed my eyes, I could be a lot more expressive. And then by the end of that first year, I found that I can set the box down and I can set up the shot where it's just the eyes and I can have both arms to work with too. And if I need to do a really long talky thing, I don't have to worry about filling uh, the video end of things. So um, I guess you could say the box was a compromise. And at this point, I, I don't particularly wish to appear on camera all that much now, but it's just such a part of archive. That's like, if I take it away, where would I go from there? I, I like it. You know, when I discovered you, I, I heard you in um, somebody else's documentary. I forget the name of that documentary now. Oh, the uh, was it the Reina Brothers one? Yes. Yeah. I thought I nice thought guys. Great. great documentary. Yeah. I heard you on there and I was like, OK, well, this guy knows what he's talking about. And, you know, they gave you a shout out in the video. So I went and checked out your channel. And the first two I watched were your the two Max Headroom ones that were on there. Yeah. And then I reached out to you and you were, you were kind enough to appear on the show. So I was like, well, I got to peruse through some of his other videos. And I was like, oh my gosh, this guy's been at this for 10 years. And worse yet, it's the mother of all rabbit holes. Yeah, there's a lot of there to choose from. What advice would you give to, to someone who is going to start a YouTube channel tomorrow? Don't. <laughs> Um, it's changed so much in the last decade. And, and to me, maybe I'm just cynical at this point, but it feels like you can't just get in and do your thing and follow whatever little passion of yours and maybe get a little notoriety from it. Because um, nowadays it's, it's all clickbait and it's mostly just people talking into their uh, webcams and spitting a new one out every day twice a day just talking about the news talking about uh makeup tutorials or any number of things that you could really just go to the well theoretically an infinite number of times and uh i, I feel like it's kind of gotten more shallow I, I think i was probably more on the artsy artsy fartsy end of things and so i i never know what to say to them and um YouTube has gotten a lot more internalized since then. Um, you know, if they want to make ad revenue from it, when I started, there were no thresholds. You could just sign up. Now you have to have X number of subscribers and you have to have a collective number of minutes viewed per month for them to even consider you. So um, I, I don't think the playing field is what it used to be, unfortunately. And I'm kind of, I've got my eye kind of on the exit right now. I, I keep kind of hoping that another site will take off and maybe in time, even if it's after my time, that it, it, maybe there can be something that's more geared towards technology, something that's more geared towards sports or whatever, and it can become kind of its own thing. And then the independent creators can start coming in and, uh, start really trying things again. Yeah, it's it's a weird business model where th they have all the control over you. 
but you're producing all this content and you have no relationship with them, but they control you somehow. Yeah. And it's, it's terrible. I mean, you do not get a hold of a person at YouTube unless you've got in quite literally into the millions of subscribers. That site is 99.9% bot run. And of course, algorithms don't understand nuance and bots don't understand satire and so on. So you're always kind of walking on eggshells and they're changing their terms of service. It seems like every day anymore. And okay, well, you can't talk about uh, this. We have deemed this a sensitive topic. And it's, it just seems to get, the news seems to get tighter and tighter. It seems like. Have you had videos that were demonetized? Oh yeah. Uh, Most notably the special bulletins episode did uh, because of the nine 11 footage even though I didn't show the planes crashing into the building or the buildings collapsing. So that, that, video. that uh, got that one shot down. And other times it's copyright related. Um, there's those occasional videos that I just have to resort to putting them on archive.org just to have them exist. What is archive.org? Uh, archive.org is uh, it's based in San Francisco and it's just a free open cultural repository it can be videos it can be music it can be whatever and i I don't necessarily like that some people will post major movies and stuff to it but it's a good place to go to post things that you might not get away with on youtube because of a copyright thing or something because you can get a takedown with archive.org but the person that has heartburn has to own the rights and they have to actually fill out the DMCA complaint, And then it goes into motion, whereas it's all bot driven on YouTube and whatever uh, record label or movie studio can just say, okay, well, if your system catches A, B, and C, you can, it can be monetized on their behalf or we can shut the video down. We can do whatever we want. So uh, I consider it more of a safe haven. And it also is home to the Wayback Machine, which is very handy. So you can search websites if you know the address and dig them up from as far back as I think 2006. So you can still visit websites that no longer exist, that the domains have lapsed. So I consider it a very valuable resource. I have used the Wayback Machine is it ridiculous that I didn't know what archive.org was? Yeah, well, I, I don't know if there's a separate access point for that, but I always use it from the homepage of archive.org. Has there been a time where YouTube changed a policy and it messed with your ad revenue? I don't know about ad revenue, but they've done some pretty stupid arbitrary things. So uh, a few years ago, actually probably closer to several now, They said, your content needs to be family friendly. We don't want you cursing. We don't want you, we don't want any violence or allusions to violence. Then COPPA happened, C-O-P-P-A, a couple of years later. And then it's, okay, well, you better be geared towards adults because if you, we deem it geared towards kids, we're going to demonetize you because of this silly little law. So it, it sometimes it just, it contradicts itself. Have you seen wild swings in the number of views for videos? Sort of. Uh, the prehistoric UHF episode that came out a couple of weeks ago did like five times better than anything I've put out in a year. But there's other times where I just don't seem to exist. Uh, I'll hear from viewers on a semi-regular basis. 
I got unsubscribed to, to your channel. I didn't do it. I just, I'm not, something happened. I'm not there anymore. Or I'm subscribed, but you're not showing up in my feed or I'm not getting recommended your videos anymore. So it can fluctuate pretty badly at times. You've said on a few of your videos that you have a, uh, a hardcore cult following. What has the reaction been to your videos to, in the general public? Uh, you mean outside of the small core viewership? How about let's go with your hardcore viewership and your casual, hey, I found this YouTube video. Uh, well, the the nice thing about being a cult YouTube channel is that I, I try and focus more towards the the regulars and because they're the ones that really keep it afloat. They're the ones that donate to the Patreon and, uh, you know, they financially keep it afloat. So they seem to be more willing to go with it generally. Now, of course, I always have to keep the greatest hits in there. So, yeah, I need to do a history lesson here and so on. But I try not to worry about too much about becoming big. I mean, it would be nice in a sense, but maybe it's coming from music, but I would rather be one of those people that if you want to use a music metaphor that puts out a ton of albums and a few of them make the bottom of the charts, but they have that core following that is just always there. And they just, you, you're always able to just roll forward with them as opposed to having that one big hit and then being stuck on the oldies circuit in a couple of years. So I try and I, I have more of that music attitude towards it. I'd rather have just that real good, solid following. When you first started putting videos out, how long into it before you started getting feedback from the public? Uh, well, almost immediately. So uh, the Max Headroom incident, I've never really had a viral hit, so to speak. But uh, that one, I think, got like 90 views or something in the first week or two, and it did get some notice. And at the time, uh, Nostalgia Critic had that guy with the glasses, and they had their own forum, and it was really a kind of a, a big forum of aspiring video makers. So I was posting my stuff to that and kind of trying to build up a following there, maybe get some feedback. So um, I, I did have a little bit of an initial burst. Then it dropped off in pretty mightily actually some of those first season episodes weird as it sounds now only got maybe a few dozen views at the time and so but they've really swung back up over the years yeah the the feedback i always had enough feedback let's put it that way and it just kind of very slowly snowballed over time is there any specific feedback you remember that sticks out so and so said this to me and it was awesome. Um, or this guy emailed me and it was terrible. I think about it every day. My personal favorite was Erin Idit. Uh, so all lowercase, you are the letter N and it's supposed to be idiot, but it was E-I-D-I or I-D-I-T, no punctuation. So that became, became a little private catchphrase of mine, Erin Idit. So if that, if you want to call that constructive criticism or whatever, for whatever reason that just struck with me, because it's just so stereotypically internet, all three words of your basic statement are misspelled. And, um, you know, on the more positive end, I have had those comments over time that, you know, I, uh, I, I at one point I heard from somebody who had been in a coma and they were coming out of it and they kind of rehab themselves, so to speak, watching archive that just became their 
their grounding coming out of it. So every now and then you, you hear those really, oh, that's why I do this kind of thing. Or you inspired me to do A, B, and C. Or very early on with Archive on the uh, TV sign-offs episode, I wanted to end with a then lost sign-off clip using the song Lonely People by the band America. And a few years later, somebody came out of the woodwork and said, hey, I found that sign-off on a Betacam SP tape. Here it is. So, you know, in my own little way, I was able to get something back into circulation. And uh, I, I would hope it's still on YouTube. But uh, yeah, every now and then you, you get just the right comment. Do you have friends and fans that give you blank tapes? With stuff already on them? Yeah, recordable VHS tapes and whatnot. Yeah, I don't know if anybody's ever gifted me any truly blanks, you know, new old stock blanks. But yeah, actually just uh, this week, a viewer sent me a Umatic tape and two VHS tapes, and he didn't have access to a three-quarter inch Umatic deck. And I popped it in, and it turned out to be bloopers, a blooper reel from the old sitcom Soap from the late 70s, early 80s. And so, yeah, it does happen. Um, Some of it's gone on Archive Annex. Last summer, I posted the contents of a tape that a viewer had sent me who lived in Florida in the late 80s, and they recorded Star Trek The Next Generation and Max Headroom, and obviously I didn't post shows, but the commercials. So, yeah, it does happen periodically. Is it something you encourage? Hey, if you have off-air recordings, ship them Not really. No, not really. You know, I won't turn it down if it's of a certain vintage or if it's a format, you know, that maybe I have a better means of doing, you know, not too many people have a a Betamax deck at this point, not that they ever did to begin with. And so, you know, that does happen. But normally, I would just say kind of hang on to your own tapes, unless it's something that you just really want me to see. There are a few movies where I grew up watching them where we had my family or my parents had recorded them off TV for me in particular Ghostbusters and the mm-hmm. movie Little Monsters. When I watch those movies now as an adult, I know the spots where the Pace Picante salsa commercial came on or the John Goodman trailer came on. Yeah, that's happened to me. Um, I had tapes. I've still got a fair amount of them that I would just watch into the ground. Mercifully, most of them have survived. But yeah, I remember uh, being absolutely shocked when I saw Caddyshack on home video for the first time, because I was used to this thing that I had recorded off of, I think, the Family Channel. And not only did I know where all the breaks were, but they had added certain scenes, they had taken out other ones, and the profanity had been silenced or replaced with some alternate word. So yeah, that I, I absolutely know what you're talking about. I remember buying Ghostbusters on DVD. And watching it, and I was like, oh my God, there's a blowjob scene in here. Because I had never seen it. I've only watched it recorded off the NBC Sunday Night Movie. Yeah, exactly. All right, Ben, what was your first car? My first car was a hand-me-down car. It was my dad's old Nissan Altima. Not a bad car. No, it it wasn't. 96? Dang, that was a really nice car. So you would have got a 96 Altima and like... Oh, early 2000s. Yeah, it didn't last very long. Um, Dad took it back, 
but um, <laughs> yeah, that, that was it. Do we get to know that story? I'm not sure. I understand it myself. I hadn't <laughs> been in any trouble with it or anything, but uh, just something or other happened. And I, I, my theory is that dad found that he, he could sell it back to the dealership or somebody for a good amount of money and he could swap it out with something else. What was I the think first? That's what happened. What was the first car that you purchased? Uh, the first car that I purchased was a Nissan Sentra. Keeping it Nissan. Yeah, I, I haven't had a Nissan in a long time now, but uh, yeah, it was a, a Sentra, and that sucker got—it's uh, actually part of archive lore, kind of. Uh, I was down to my last like two or three payments on it. It was new, and uh, it—I I got in a head-on collision just before I got paid off. And I was working on the first episodes of archive at the time. So that really took the wind out of my sails. And also it's the reason why the, there's a massive tonal shift between the second and third episodes of archive. Cause I had a bruised rib cage from that. <laughs> so I it, suddenly TV signoffs became a much more low key episode. That's interesting. I'm sure people will be, excited to know that episode three with bruised ribs yeah um i, I did a, a a commentary i used to do kind of dvd commentaries on some of my episodes but yeah I, the, i'm sure the real diehards are aware of that but if not yeah it's a, a nice little bit of trivia and it explains why the tone shifted so radically what's the best thing you could buy for 10 bucks uh what just at any time yeah right now what could you get for $10? That's awesome. I don't know. <laughs> I know it's not something I've uh, ever really thought about. Um, I guess if I want to stay in character, so to speak, well, I can pop down to the thrift store and buy a stack of tapes with it. I'm sure you could get a lot of tapes for $10 these days. Yeah. To a point every now and then they'll try and mark them up, but uh, yeah, I, I could pop down to Goodwill and walk out with 10 tapes, assuming they haven't messed with the price. Is there a, do you have a favorite thrift store? Around here, no, not really. Um, in, in Denver, I used to love the ARC uh, chain of thrift stores. But here, it doesn't really, it, it's never really clicked the way they, it did for me back then. So, yeah, I'll, I, I will jokingly call such and such my former favorite thrift store. And uh, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with LGR, Lazy Game Reviews, on YouTube. He does a thrifting thing as well, which I admittedly nicked from early on. And uh, he kind of makes that joke, well, this is my former favorite thrift store. But yeah, I don't have a go-to. The Ark is a good chain of thrift stores. My wife is there all the time. Yeah, I, I, I miss Ark uh, quite a bit. But as far as I know, that doesn't extend outside of Colorado. Where's the best place to get a cheeseburger? Uh, well, I, I gave up red meat <laughs> uh, not too long ago, but there's a, a restaurant here in Sioux Falls called Minerva's in downtown Sioux Falls that made really good burgers. No red meat. Any specific reason for that? Uh, well, I will do small amounts of red meat, but um, I, I was just having some health problems for a while, like tightness in the chest and... Um, inflamed lungs and I was kind of just messing around with what should I have and not have and I found that when I took red meat out of it that I started to feel a lot better so I mean if I get a really get a mind to I'll get a burger but then that has to be it for quite a while. Why the move from Colorado to South Dakota? 
Uh, a few reasons. I, I did a video on it at the time, just a, a completely off the cuff thing. But for one, the neighborhood I was living in really was getting rough those last few years. And I, most of my family is in South Dakota. And I just, you know, it, it was like, well, I know the place and the rent's cheaper out here. Homes are cheaper out here, uh, certainly compared to what Denver has become in the last five years or so. And so it was just like, yeah, I, I was going to hold out a little longer. But when I was visiting at one point, I was like, you know, this place might work. And so I just kind of sucked it up and made the big leap. The only reason I really bring that up is it seems like if you're going to be roaming around looking for retro gizmos. Yeah, this is a terrible place for it. But um, yeah, I wasn't thinking that way. I guess I was just thinking more on a strictly practical level. You know, where can I go where I won't be stuck in a neighborhood where once a week I'm going to get locked down by the police because the bank got robbed again or something like that. So that was more my mindset. And also a lot of my friends and stuff had been moving away. I, I lost one good friend in a car wreck. Uh, the year before I moved. So it just kind of, it, it was a bunch of little things that just added up. All right. Well, Ben, is there anything I didn't ask you? Oh, I'm sure lots of things, but uh, I, I'll keep the door open for round two, I suppose. I'm into that. If people want to uh, check out your work, where can they find you? Um, oddityarchive.com. You can access every episode from there. Of course, you can search Oddity Archive on YouTube youtube.com slash oddity archive. I've got a second channel called archive annex, youtube.com slash archive annex, where I post mostly uh, stuff unfiltered. So commercial breaks and uh, whatever ephemera. It's where my little fake radio show, Sergi's Catacomb of Classics lives. So uh, yeah, you got a a few methods of getting in touch with me uh, on Facebook twitter at oddity archive well ben i appreciate you coming on and it's exciting to uh have discovered your work in the last few weeks and i'm definitely going to keep following along thank you thank you ben benny boy is a really cool dude and his channel is honestly very funny and informative and odd if you're an av freaking nerd like me then there is a ton of cool stuff for you to check out He's uploaded hundreds of videos over the last decade, and I guarantee there is some stuff in there you'll enjoy. Oddity Archive on YouTube, Patreon, Twitter, Facebook, or oddityarchive.com. We'll have links to it all in the show notes. Go check out Ben's work. It's awesome. Thank you to Ben Minot for his help to catch the wave. Thank you to Russell Colbert. Your love is fading. My name is Darren Schaefer, and yeah, I think I'm better than Chuck Swarsky. Thank you for listening to The Book of Darren. Forget about it. This book is not for you.